Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We could be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents the most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 19. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, I'm really excited for this show as we're nearing 20. We're getting, what, close to our third season, you would say. Uh... As we're in the heart of the playoffs with the NFL division playoffs just a couple days away. But I want to begin with the college football playoffs that just ended with Alabama beating Georgia in overtime 26-23. to Georgia had led 13 to nothing at the half. And until the overtime game-winning touchdown pass, they didn't trail at all in this game. And the surprise move by Nick Saban. At halftime, replacing Jalen Hurts for freshman Tua Tunovailoa. And a little bit of a tongue twister of a last name. But, I mean, Tua did phenomenal. 116 passing yards, three touchdowns, the game-winning passing touchdown in overtime. And as a result, Nitsaribin gets his sits championship, which ties Bear Bryant all-time, his fifth in his last nine years at Alabama, the main question, Jose, is Nick Saban the greatest college football coach of all time? Well, I mean, he is tied for the most championships now in college football, so that kind of puts him on a, you know, a league of his own, honestly. I mean, in the past couple of years, it's been Alabama dominating the college football scene. And, you know, it's not just Nick Saban winning these titles, too. When it comes to college football, it's all about recruitment as well, too. And, not only, you know, it's very easy to say that Alabama gets all the top recruits because they keep winning, but Nick Saban still has to go out there and pitch Alabama to these kids coming out of high school, right? He still has to convince their parents, hey, I'm going to take care of your son when he walks through those doors. We're going to make him a better person than he is when he comes into the program, right? College football is all about all about the program itself and not just the football on the field and winning championships, too. So the fact that Nick Saban is also able to get a lot of these top recruits from around the country out of high school to come to Alabama says a lot about his legacy as well, too. Now, of course, the winning aside, Nick Saban gets picked on a lot for picking his own schedule and stuff like that. So there's some controversy whenever it comes to Alabama. But there really is no doubt that Nick Saban is one of the best coaches of all time in the college football scene. I mean, the championships prove it. The stats prove it. He's had a lot of talented teams. Um, and not only do they win championships, but they also make it to a ton of them as well, too. Now, Again, you know, Alabama has established a certain dominance over the college football scene that everybody's trying to stack themselves up to beat Alabama. They're always in the Final Four. They always seem to be in the championship game. They won six championships. Now, don't get me wrong. I think he still needs to win one more just so he can already pass 
uh, the record for most in the college football scene. But there's no doubt about it that Nick Saban is cementing his legacy as one of the best coaches of all time. Yeah, you're talking about a coach, which from like the Bill Belichick training and comes in, runs house pretty much for the last 10 years, averaging over 12 wins a season for the last 10 years and just over a loss per season. I mean, that's phenomenal. And you're, again, this isn't like the NFL where you can have a player for years and years and years and years to come. You, like you said, you have to be constantly recruiting. You have to constantly switch house. In four years, all these guys are going to be gone and less than that in threesome, uh, even sometimes two, but it's rare in football. And what has Nick Saban produced? Seven straight years of the best recruiting class. 37, I think, Under Armour top players in this year's uh, that he had on his team. And the, the Nets top couple teams had 32 combined. So obviously, he's getting the right recruiting players. He got, he's got the best team most of the time. And it results in getting the wins. But, I mean, how many coaches would... Honestly, and not NFL-wise, but just in college in general where you could get away with doing something like this, you take out Jalen Hurts, who has started the last 27 games for you. He's gone 25-2 and two in that span. When you're down 13 nothing in the championship, for a freshman that hasn't played pretty much at all this season, and the last time he took a snap was in October, and you make the switch for that, and all, you get three touchdowns, 166 yards. Your entire offense changes. Now we're looking at Tano Viola as the Nets' Marcus Mariota from Hawaii, and he's now looking at a possibly even a bigger star with the fact that he was able to come back in this game. But I don't think there's any other coach that does this move that takes a junior that's had so much success for a freshman that's never been out there. And for the for a freshman to just be ready, what backup is ever ready for a football game half the time when they come in? They're never really prepared. They've never really been practicing at that point. And he's completely ready to go. So I think that's an amazing part about Nick Saban. And to me, I, I know... College football has been around for so, so long. And we do struggle with an eye test that often when we see somebody for this last decade and for how long he's been around for right now, we look and say, okay, by that logic of what we've only seen of late, it's the greatest of all time. But there's no one in this span of nine years to have this type of dominance. There, four straight years of getting to the championship game, constantly winning sits championships all time in my mind he is the greatest because of the fact that like you mentioned the recruiting uh, be able to make the toughest coaching decisions when it comes to taking out and putting in a guy who hasn't even been there constantly revamping your team when it comes to offensive and defensive coaches it, Kirby Smart who was playing a uh, Coaching Georgia is a former coordinator for Alabama. We saw him fire Lane Griffin right before the game against, pretty much a couple days before the championship game against Clemson a couple of years. So 
constantly making the moves and these tough decisions, and it still works out for Nick Saban. So if, to me, he is the greatest college football coach of all time. But Jose, let me ask you this part. Uh, the NFL, so many different coaching jobs available right now and with all different teams. Do you think Nick Saban will consider going to the NFL? You know, honestly, we've seen that come up a lot in the past couple of days because there are just so many openings around. And if Nick Saban says, hey, I want to coach in the NFL, honestly, I think I feel like a lot of teams are waiting to see what Nick Saban wants to do because otherwise a lot of teams would have chosen their head coach by now. Um, they don't have a long list of candidates, honestly. And Nick Saban, honestly, is more qualified than a lot of the defensive coordinators and offensive coordinators that are being offered to positions, to certain positions. But honestly, I really think Nick Saban is very happy where he is. And I think Nick Saban is going to return again to Alabama next year. I think Nick Saban wants to really put his stamp on the college football scene and get that number seven title. Like we said, we both consider him the best of all time already. But I really do think Nick Saban would love to add number seven and really plant that flag down to make it an undisputed claim that he is the best coach of all time. And also, I just think, you know, Nick Saban is such a talented coach. And as we said, he constantly makes these decisions. If he really wanted to coach in the NFL, Nick Saban would have a job right now. And I truly believe that if Nick Saban wanted to coach in the National Football League, he would have already made the jump. There's really nothing left for him to prove in college football. There's nothing left for him to prove at Alabama. There's really nothing left for him to do at Alabama besides win that seven championship. And even if he doesn't win that seven championship, he still goes down and one of the best coaches of all time. So the question is for Nick Saban is, what is it about? Is it because, Does he want to win a championship at the NFL level? Does he want the money that comes with being an NFL head coach? But honestly, I really don't see Nick Saban coaching at the NFL level because I would have think he would have already made the jump if he really wanted to do so already. I, a lot of times it comes down to legacy. And we view him, and many view him as the greatest college football coach. And if he does another couple of years at Alabama, and they win another championship or two. Obviously, that's going to cement his legacy even further as the greatest. But if he goes to the NFL, and I think it was Bruce Aries uh, that who retired from the Arizona Cardinals, he, and he said if Saban decides to go, he would go to only one team, and that was the New York Giants, he said. I, just taking the Giants as the example. If he goes to the Giants and the Giants struggle and he struggles and you still see no improvements, that's just going to hurt his legacy. Because then all of a sudden we're looking at and saying, you know, he could be the greatest college football coach. But when he got to the, the NFL, he struggled and he couldn't handle it there. And to me, that's there's no positive because if he goes to the NFL and then he succeeds and he wins a Super Bowl or he wins two Super Bowls okay then we're looking at him as possibly one of the greatest coaches of all time in the sport of football in general but there's more in my mind that says if you struggle in the NFL compared if you struggle in Alabama your legacy is cemented in Alabama as still one of the greatest coaches whereas if you struggle in the NFL your legacy diminishes a little bit and we don't view you as high because you couldn't get the success elsewhere. Yeah, and I mean, especially because the NFL is a different animal. You know, as much as we all love college football, the kids play with more heart. The NFL is different than the college football scene. You know, the kids, the players, not able to make the transition to NFL. And like you mentioned before, Kelly, 
he was a great coach at Oregon, right? Everybody thought he would do fantastic coming over, and Chip Kelly is a terrible NFL head coach, and we can all agree on that. You know, he's had two stints with two different teams, and it hasn't worked. So it's not always a guaranteed success rate by jumping over and making the move either. Yeah, and we also saw him struggle when he was with the Miami Dolphins. So that's it, that's also part of, I think, why he shouldn't go back. Because if you see it again and you see the struggles again, where he was, I think, 15 and 17 uh, with the Dolphins compared to, what, 48 uh, wins and then 62-plus with Alabama at times. And, and obviously, he's way more wins now that you look at it more in the future as we're towards 2018. But there's just not enough positives to say, hey, go to the NFL because if you succeed here – you might be considered the greatest coach of all time, and it puts him in a far more challenging debate. Whereas if he gets, what, one more championship, he's got the most all-time, two more championships, it's really hard to consider him not the greatest college football coach of all time. So I don't think he's going to consider the NFL. And like you said, if he wanted the NFL, he would just say it flat out, and there'd be a, what, a line out his door of at least 10 football teams that would want him to coach for them, maybe more. He, he could basically have the choice of whichever team he wants at that point. So to me, if, if Nick Saban wanted to coach in the NFL, he would have already done it. Uh, staying with college football for a moment, uh, UCF, the University of Central Florida, well, they had something a little bit different this NFL season than most teams, uh, this college football season than most teams, they finished the year going 13-0, and beating Auburn 34-27, to Auburn who beat both teams playing in the national championship, Georgia and Alabama. So UCF, who didn't make the playoffs, was not voted in, uh, did not finish over the polls at the highest was 10th, and, and at the final rankings at the end of the season they did pick up four first place votes and that put them at sixth or seventh around there so they were never in consideration for the top four pronounced themselves national champions went to disney the day before the monday game between georgia and alabama to celebrate the governor of florida congratulated the the team as national champions Jose, has UCF and, and almost like the state of Florida taken it too far, or is this the right smart move to do? No, I mean, I think they have taken it a little bit too far. Don't get me wrong. I really think UCF deserves consideration. They should have deserved consideration to make the college football scene, right? I mean, and this is why we're going to have that conversation over and over again about should the college football playoffs expand? Should we have eight teams? Should we have six teams? Because teams like this deserve to show off what they can do on a national stage, right? Teams like Auburn, right? They beat Alabama and Georgia, yet they're not in the Final Four. So let's expand this playoff picture to include teams like UCF. That way we're not having this debate at the end of the year of, well, is Alabama truly the champions because UCF's undefeated and they beat this so-and-so? So, With that being said, I think it's a good thing because it shows you why we should expand the college football playoffs, right? Move it to six teams. Move it to eight teams. Include a wild card Saturday. There's plenty of Sundays left in the schedule to stretch this out and make it a a couple more bowl games. You don't have to worry about the ratings not being there. People watch these games on TV. People love college football. People will watch these games if you put them on. 
So for one point, it's it's good and bad. Good because it shows you that we should be expanding these college football playoffs to include more teams. I think everybody would be in favor of that. And it gives some schools more exposure like UCF. Bad news is, is that, yeah, you're taking this a little bit too far, my dudes. I get it. You beat Auburn, who beat Georgia, and who beat Alabama. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you would have beaten Georgia or you beat in Alabama. I can eat more hot dogs than whoever beats Joey Chestnut, but I'm not automatically the hot dog champion if I don't eat more hot dogs than Joey Chestnut in a way. You know, it's just one of those things where you can't just crown yourself a champion if you didn't beat the other two teams just because you beat someone who beat. It's, it's just so confusing. I mean, you can't make a legitimate case in that scenario just because you beat one team that happened to beat the other two. I get it. I understand it, what you mean. But until you actually get on that field and play Georgia and play Alabama, you can't really say that you would have beaten those two teams just because you beat Auburn. Two, I'm fine with the school calling themselves national champions. Yeah, you want to have some bragging rights. You want to have a chip on your shoulder. It's funny. It's competitive. The governor starts getting involved and you have the school, the actual school website calling yourself national champions. Then it's getting a little bit too far. But what was really going too far is after Alabama wins this championship, UCF basically puts out an open challenge to face Alabama, to settle it, to see who is the national champion. Now, that might be biting off a little bit more than you can chew. Don't get me wrong, I, didn't, I wouldn't have put Alabama in my Final Four this year. I know a lot of people were complaining that Alabama snuck in to begin with, but Nick, Alabama faced Clemson in the first round, and they made Clemson look bad. And not just, not, oh, Clemson had an off game. They made Clemson look like Clemson didn't belong in the Final Four, Alabama. Alabama came back from what most teams aren't able to do. What, they're losing, what, 28? What was it, 23 or 28-10? Whatever the score was, Alabama came all 2010, Alabama came all the way back. Exactly. And again, like we said, they sub in a freshman new QB. He goes off, and his team responds as well, too. Not many teams can do that. Can UCF really look in the mirror and say, hey, we can take down Alabama because Alabama is still a scary team. Yes, I mean, a lot of us didn't have have them in our Final Four, but look what they did against Clemson. Look what they did against Georgia. Alabama earned that championship when it came to the actual college football playoff games itself. Again, it's good and bad. UCF wants to have a little friendly competition. I get it. We should expand the playoff football format. I'm all for that, but don't go around calling yourself national champions because you're biting off way more than you can chew by just saying you beat one team that beat the other two. Yeah, for me, I definitely think there's points where it's gotten a little bit too far, but it has been a lot of fun to watch uh, what UCF has done. And, you know, I'm going to say it's the right move. Uh, You're 13-0, you beat Auburn. That doesn't make you better than Alabama. That doesn't make you better than Georgia. But what it does do is you puts you a little bit more noticeable. And they got four first-place votes on the final ranking. That's not to say much. Alabama got over 50. um, And nobody else got a single vote. But it it gives you a chance to have a bit more of a a shot to get into the playoffs next year. Because they were on no one's radar, and the committee basically had wanted nothing to do with this team. When you put a team that's 12-0 and 0 at the point and they don't allow Ohio State into the playoffs because they have two losses and an extremely ugly loss, and that's how Alabama gets in. But a team that's 12-0, and 0, yes, they're not in the Power 5 conferences. 
yes, they're not one of these high-power teams that come and play out an amazing schedule. But what they did do was they finished that season unbeaten. And, and they still, when it came to their bowl against Auburn, they beat Auburn. So they did enough to put themselves, I think, giving to put themselves in fighting contending for at least a higher rank come next year. And if they're able to do it again, and if they're able to start winning games, and if they're able to stay undefeated for as long as they can, they should be able to get into in my mind, the top eight, the top six, they're currently ranked on the final rankings. Maybe they can wind up in the top five, but this is the way to do it. Because if you're going to go 13-0, and beat every team, destroy in points scored all season long, and you're not even in consideration, then you have to take some drastic measures in my mind to put yourself on the ballot, to put yourself in the committee's eyes to really get yourself out there. And this is exactly how to do it. This entire week when everyone should be talking about Georgia and Alabama, the biggest time that college football is going to be talked about is the biggest week to go out there and just just make yourself known. And UCF did exactly that. If they, Like you said, after the game, when they're challenging Alabama, that's the point where it's like, okay, now you're going a little bit too far. And if you find somehow to do anything this week or uh, to do anything further, then you're going a bit too far. But before this game, yeah, by all means, do whatever you can to make yourself known, to make yourself talked about in discussion with Georgia and Alabama, to make the committee believe that you're going to be a team for real next year, to make people that watch college football overall believe that you should be talked about more because you were 12-0, and you were 13-0, and and you beat Auburn, who's beaten a couple of good teams as well. So I, I completely agree with the right move that they're doing. Uh, the governor getting involved was funny. Them going to Disney, that's always a fun trip. So by all means, and congrats to UCF. I'm not going to say they're national champions, but still going 13-0 and and the only team to go 13-0 this season in college football, that's still impressive in my mind. What I'm really waiting for, though, is I'm waiting for UCF to reveal a video where they're holding the mascot from Alabama hostage until they get a national title game um, against Alabama one-on-one. That would be interesting, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, they really could be WWE right now. (laughs) If you ever want to see the elephant again, you give us a national title game on ESPN. Finding a way to get a challenge. Uh, but certainly so, uh, again, congrats to UCF, congrats to Alabama, um, UCF obviously for going 13-0, Alabama for winning the championship as Nick Saban gets his sits, and in my mind, he's already cemented himself as the greatest college football coach of all time. But speaking of coaches, ESPN's former analyst and was on Monday Night Football, but now going back to coaching is John Gruden. He signed a 10-year, $100 million contract to coach the Oakland Raiders. He's backed with the Oakland Raiders. Gruden hasn't coached since 2009. Jose, is this the right fit for the Raiders after the team went 6-10? And And this is a huge contract we're talking about as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a good fit for the Raiders in terms of getting John Gruden. I mean, John Gruden, to me, I mean, he won a championship with this group. 
Um, you know, he used to be, you know, he was a former coach with the Raiders. Um, you know, he's a guy who knows what he's talking about, even though he's an analyst, he's still a good, you know, he's a great football mind. Um, he's going to come in here and he's going to win some games. Um, the problem I had was not with them getting John Gruden. The problem I have is the, the dynamic of the contract. I mean, 10 years, a hundred million dollars. I would never commit to anything for 10 years. I'm sorry. Not in this day and age with the coaches in the NFL. Cause let me ask you something. Let's say the Raiders go six and ten again in year one. Year two, maybe they go five and eleven. What if they go four and twelve? What if there's no success in sight within the first three or four years? Do you can John Gruden? You know, do you get rid of him? Do you fire him? Or you can't because you have so much money invested in this guy. We're talking about ten million dollars every single year for the next ten years. And if you fire him in year four or five, um, you still owe him all that money. I'm not understanding how this contract is going to work here between the two. I get it. You want to make a splash. This team is going to be relocated to Vegas no matter what. And I'm assuming they want to have that identity going into Vegas. Um, but, you know, so it's really, uh, again, it's a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. You know, which one's going to come out of it? Because on the good side is you're getting a good head coach in John Gruden. He's a proven winner and at the NFL stage, right? He knows what he's talking about. He's inheriting a really good defense in the Oakland Raiders. He's inheriting a really good quarterback with Derek Carr, right? The Raiders are not a bad team. I think me and you can agree that the Raiders just had a bad year. They went 6-10, and 10, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't think the Raiders, I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that the Raiders can bounce back and go 9-7 and seven next year or even go 10-6 and six next year and make the playoffs again. This is a team that's a year, that was a year removed from the playoffs, and they probably would have done great things last year if Derek Carr didn't get hurt, right? So Gruden's inheriting a really good team. I think they need to do something about the running back situation because I think Marshall and Lynch coming back to the Raiders this year was a total fail. But nonetheless, you're getting a good head coach. You're getting a guy who knows what he's doing, and he's taking over a good team that could easily bounce back next year. The problem I have, though, 10 years, $100 million. That's a long time to stay committed to one guy, especially when you fire Jack Del Rio a year after he made the playoffs with this team. If the Raiders don't see instant success, how bad does that make them look by giving a guy a 10-year contract. You know, it's it's weird because this almost has like that Marshawn Lynch feel to me. Like you brought back Marshawn Lynch last season because born and raised Oakland guy and this was the only team that he'd consider. And you didn't see much success from Marshawn Lynch. And this concerns me a lot because, like you said, it's all about making a bid slash. Raider fans know who John Gruden is. Many people that watch ESPN and Monday Night Football know who John Gruden is. He's a household name. For a guy who hasn't coached since 2009-2008, he's got a big name behind him and a big brand when it comes to just coaching in general. So when the team, like we assume, is going to get moved to Vegas, it's good to have a coach of a big name behind it with a big name QB like Derek Carr. Obviously, I don't think the Raiders are a 6-10 team. I think they're a much better team like they were a year ago when they just you know, made the playoffs, but they were basically out of the playoffs because Derek Carr got injured. So I look and say they still have a great offense. They, they need to work on a little bit of that run game. Their defense was a little bit shakier this year. They really struggled out the get-go. And, of course, there's going to be the belief that you know, the division's still semi-weak. Uh, but here's the issue with me. A lot of it is 
we're talking again, it's not a guy, like you said, 10 years, 100 million. And the only person, when it comes to a coach, that re- in any sport, not just the NFL, but in any sport, the only coach in my mind that can get a contract like that is Bill Belichick. So automatically, I don't, I th- you're obviously overpaying for $10 million a year for 10 years on John Gruden. And you haven't coached in the NFL. I know you've been part of the NFL for the last decade, especially with ESPN and Monday Night Football, but you haven't been in the NFL for 10 years. And I get it. Maybe it's like riding a bike, but I highly doubt it. Because if you haven't done something for 10 years, do you still have it all the time? We're going to see that with, what, Herm Edwards, who left ESPN? And he's going to coach college football for uh, Arizona, or I think Arizona State. There's just, in my mind, not enough success to believe that for a person who hasn't been there for 10 years can just jump right in there and everything's going to work out. Can, Can jump right in there with a game plan that he has or a game plan that he's going to create and just going to immediately spark success. I, I really don't buy into that. And that's a real struggle in my mind. And then mix it with the fact that the Raiders aren't built on having an ownership with a lot of money. And they're going to be the the highest paid coach at this point on a 10-year contract on $100 million when the team doesn't have a lot of money behind them. There's just so many questionable things with it. I, I get they needed John Runen. I get they needed a big name. But to do it in this type of way with this type of contract... It just it doesn't speak out like it's gonna have success in any way, shape, or form. Let's jump into a little bit of the playoffs, though. Uh, but can't do that without talking about the New England Patriots. And the Patriots, they've had a lot of disagreements lately with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and Robert Kraft, and a lot of it spurs through the entire season and possibly even years prior. Uh, you have the disapproval that Belichick has towards Brady's relationship with Alex Guerrero, who's his trainer and a semi-business partner with Tom Brady. Uh, then there was reports that Robert Kraft reportedly ordered Bill Belichick to trade Jimmy Garoppolo to the San Francisco 49ers because Garoppolo was seen as the replacement for Tom Brady, and Tom Brady didn't want that. He didn't want the idea of possibly being replaced. And we're seeing already the success Jimmy Garoppolo has had with the San Francisco 49ers. And Belichick upset on that part. Brady viewed as like a son to Robert Kraft. So, Jose, let's try and make some sense of this. Do you view this, one, as a major issue between Brady and Belichick? And if so, could this be the end of an era for these two men? No, I mean, I, I don't think this is an issue at all, honestly. I think this stuff goes on probably far more often than me and you both know, right? I mean, this is this sounds like basic locker room stuff that we don't always have access to, right? Who knows? Maybe this thing has been going on for years, and we just found out about it this year um, between Belichick and Brady. Um, you know, it's and, and you see this often, too. The owner will always kind of side with the players as opposed to head coaches or even managers on any sport, really. For some reason, there's always an attachment from owner to player, but not so much from owner to coach. And I feel like sometimes the coach gets the short end of the stick where 
they end up catching heat from the owners and getting fired, or, or the coaches are always the ones that end up walking away. You never really see the star player walking away from the team in situations like this. Is it an end of an era? And you know what? That's a hard question to answer because both guys are kind of at the tail end of their career. Bill Belichick, a lot like Nick Saban, has nothing left to prove. Bill Belichick is the best coach in the NFL. He will be the best coach in the NFL for a long time to come. I don't see any coaches really threatening his positioning as the best coach of all time. Bill Belichick can retire tomorrow, and he'll again, he'll be the best, you know, the best head coach of all time. Tom Brady, he can retire tomorrow. He's the best quarterback of all time. He has nothing left to prove either. And really, the whole situation is, I get it with Jimmy Garoppolo. If you're if you're Bill Belichick, you don't want to trade this guy. This guy's a stud. Look what he's doing in San Francisco. A total attitude change by the time he got there. But on the flip side, if you're Robert Kraft, you're also watching Brady. He still has it. And who knows? Who knows how many more years Brady's still going to have it for? And the question because let's let the question becomes let's say Brady does keep playing for four to five years. Are you really going to have Garoppolo still sitting on the bench, getting paid a ridiculous amount of money? Because you know a lot of teams are going to want to overpay Garoppolo. So now you're going to have to overpay to keep him. Is it worth paying $18 million a year to a backup QB for four to five years, or maybe even longer, depending on how long Tom Brady can actually go? Because Tom Brady hasn't really given a timeline as when he wants to hang it up, right? Tom Brady's the one who joked around saying, I want to play till I'm 50, but my wife won't let me. And who knows if Tom Brady actually can do that? Because he's 40 years old, he doesn't look 40. Yeah, he had a bad month of December, but Tom Brady, to me, can still go. I think he still has another two to three years left in him. So it puts the Patriots in a very dysfunctional situation where you have Garoppolo. He's the, quote, QB of the future. But the question is, when is the future? And how long do you keep Garoppolo on the bench waiting for Brady's time to end up? And who knows about all that mess? But anyways, I think the bottom line is that the Patriots are just fine. Um, This is just another distraction that the Patriots have to deal with. I think Tom Brady said it himself before, hey, there's nothing new to us. We hear these stories all the times. And again, this is probably true. This probably goes on a lot more often than we think. We probably just don't hear about it. I think the Patriots are fine. In terms of an end of an era, I think Bill Belichick's going to want to hang it up soon anyways. Again, there's nothing left for him to prove. Um, so I don't think it's going to damage the relationship between Belichick and Brady. I really just, I really think that this doesn't um, interfere with the Patriots really at all. I think it's more of being blown out of proportion, if anything else, for the Patriots. It's so tough to tell when it comes to the New England Patriots sometimes uh, because it, it certainly can make a lot of sense on if this is a big deal because we know Bill Belichick likes everything to be a certain way and we know he hasn't been a fan of Alex Guerrero and Brady is very close with Guerrero and we know Brady is viewed like a son by Robert Kraft and you, it's always Belichick. Belichick and the business of an NFL doesn't care who you are. When it comes to your time, he's going to replace you. And I think he had the same mindset when it comes to Tom Brady. And we're seeing that right now. Tom Brady is having the worst, what, five-game span of his entire career. And maybe that's just because there's a little bit more tension, maybe because there's a little bit more struggling, or maybe because it's finally starting to hit him. And... This bye week is extremely important for Tom Brady, but certainly I could believe that it could be, you know, getting towards his age. And had the Patriots kept Jimmy Garoppolo, now all of a sudden, if they wanted to replace Tom Brady, they could. But Robert Kraft doesn't want to see Tom Brady play for another team. He doesn't want to see that Brett Favre moment happen. He doesn't want to see, uh, like, a Peyton Manning example 
where you go and you leave Indianapolis and then you go to Denver and you win a Super Bowl. So I think that's the last thing Robert Kraft wants to see. I think Robert Kraft wants to see Brady just be a Patriot his entire career. And I think that creates a lot of uh, differences when it comes to Bill Belichick. Now, I don't necessarily know, or I don't think anyone's going to know if this is their last year together. Only time will tell soon enough. But if there was a time for one of them to leave, it is right now after this season. And it is Bill Belichick. Because I think Bill Belichick has kind of proven, you know, Brady, let's see if you can do it with the certain guys we have not in my system. And these random players of like a Deion Lewis who's played phenomenal or James White and a Danny Amendola. Or, and we always talked about how these are guys that Tom Brady mates, but this is the guys that Bill Belichick creates for his system and it constantly has success. And then we're looking at Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator. He's most likely going to have a head coaching job. Don't know where, but he's most likely going to have one. Most, If I had to assume, Indianapolis would be a great fit. Matt Patricia, the guy that's been the core defensive coordinator for the Patriots for the last five-plus years, and it's just always seen. He most likely is going to have a head coaching job for the first time in his career. So all of a sudden, if Brady and Belichick still stay, now Belichick has Tom Brady, doesn't have a future quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo behind Tom Brady, doesn't have an offensive coordinator, doesn't have a defensive coordinator, and has to pretty much start all over again. Or he could leave and go somewhere else if he wants to continue coaching much longer than a year or two time span of what we can assume Tom Brady has. So I kind of see this as a major issue. Or if it's not a major issue... It could just be that extra push that gets Belichick out the door. And that I could believe at the end of the day. That it could be that push that says, hey, maybe I've done everything I can with the New England Patriots and with the greatest quarterback of all time. And now it's time to me to move on because I continue. I want to still continue coaching. And this isn't the right place for me. We saw him do it with the Jets. He was coached the team for within 24 hours, and he got traded to the New England Patriots. So it, it, we've seen it happen before when it comes to Bill Belichick, and if there's someone that we could believe holds the type of grudge that would want to continue coaching and want to have success and want to stick it to somebody, it's the type of personality that has Bill Belichick written on it. Jose, Patriots playing Titans this weekend. Patriots' best team in the AFC versus the Titans, who basically got in partly because they won and the Ravens lost. And But Titans were able to survive against the Chiefs, down 21-3 to at the half. Marcus Mariota throws a touchdown pass to himself in order to get through. Who do you have winning this one? Well, for this one, I'm going to have to go with the status quo. I'm going to choose the New England Patriots over the Titans. And this one just comes down to flat-out experience. Now, don't get me wrong, give credit to the Titans. They also had to keep winning in order to make the playoffs. So, you know, they were able to win out, especially when I thought the Titans would be, you know, if you would have asked me who was going to miss the playoffs, the Ravens or the Titans, I probably would have told you the Titans because they're a very inconsistent team. But, you know, they beat the Chiefs last weekend. 
give them credit. They came back. They were down big in that game, came back in the second half, answered, what, 21, 22 unanswered points. Um, so give them credit for that. But then again, you know, you're facing a team like the Chiefs who, you know, Andy Reid and Alex Smith, I told you this through text, Nick, they, they wrote the book on how to choke. You want to know how to blow a lead? You read the book written by Andy Reid and Alex Smith. They know how to do it. They're the experts on it. So for the Titans, you want to give them all the credit in the world, but they were also facing a bad playoff team, you know, when it comes to the Kansas City Chiefs. This is going to be a good test for the Titans to see where are they, you know, where are they in terms of the rebuild process? Where are they in terms of being ready to compete? Um, I expect this game to be competitive. I don't think the Patriots are just going to run over the Titans, but I will give this to the Patriots. Been there, done it before. Titans, this is going to be Mariota's, what, only second career playoff game? His first one came last week. I'm very high on Mariota in the future. I think the Titans are going to be a team that's going to be around for a while. Um, but this is just one of those things where it says, you know, you're glad you got your feet wet. You're glad you got some playoff experience in. How can we come back here next year? Because you're not going to get past the Patriots. Yeah, for me, the Patriots are going to win this one. They're, they're a 13-point favorite, 13.5-point favorite, depending on the site you're using. Uh, it's... It's too obvious not to take the Patriots in this one. Uh, but you mentioned a fun little thing, experience. I thought it was – obviously, I'm going to have the Patriots for this. But Tom Brady versus Marcus Mariota, who's played one game. Ben Roethlisberger, who's got the second most playoff games played as a quarterback active right now, versus Blake Bortles, who's only played in one playoff game, which was last week. Uh, Drew Brees who's played in, I think, 12 now, versus Case Keenum, who I don't believe has played in a single playoff game where he's played in one. And then no, he's, he has zero under his he, eye, he, He's the one that has zero. And then Nick Foles has one game experience versus Matt Ryan, who, again, doesn't have that many games, but he's got enough under his belt, near double digits. He's been to a Super Bowl. This is really weird to see how there's quarterbacks with experience versus quarterbacks with pretty much no experience this season so that's a huge disparity uh in the nfl especially this week especially uh so does that stand out to you as well it does i mean i don't want to just say whoever has the most experience is obviously going to win the game but when you add the experience of brady belichick that to me those guys together and we i know we just talked about how there's a, you know, a dispute between the two. But when you're facing a team that has Brady and Belichick together, guys who have done this, again, been there, done it before, that to me is a different level of experience than all these other QBs. I think it's interesting, and I think obviously the edge goes to um, the other guys who have more playoff experience. But in a situation like this, it's the fact that it's Brady and Belichick together um, is what really puts it over the top of my eyes. Yeah, uh, for me, again, Patriots going to win this one. Uh, but... It's just a large disparity in games played. But let's continue with the other AFC game. So the three-seeded Jacksonville Jaguars taking on the two-seeded Pittsburgh Steelers. These two teams met in October, early October, where the Jacksonville Jaguars won 30-9 to in Pittsburgh. Who's going to meet what we expect will be the, uh, the New England Patriots in the AFC Championship? Well, it's pretty funny, Nick, because when you look at these four games, right, and I'm making my picks... Three out of the four games, I was able to say, that team, that team, that team. This is the one that gave me a little bit of trouble. And a lot of people would probably find that shockingly. Because all year long, what, what have we been saying? Oh, it's going to be the Patriots-Steelers in the AFC Championship, right? I'm pretty sure you know, 99 out of 100 NFL fans expect those two teams to be in the AFC Championship game. But to me, the Jacksonville Jaguars are a very, very interesting team. 
one of the best defenses of the NFL. I said last week that that Jaguars-Bills game had potential to be a very low-scoring game because both teams have great defenses, and it did. It was the lowest-scoring game, I believe, out of all four games that were played on Wild Card Weekend, right? I mean, what, what was the final score? 10-3? 10 10-3. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's outrageous. You don't, you don't hear those scores anymore when it comes to NFL football because just defenses are not that strong as they used to be. The Jaguars pride themselves on a very strong defense. However, I'm still going to roll with the Pittsburgh Steelers on this one. I'm sorry if it's a cop-out, but I'm going to take Ben Roethlisberger's experience over Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles, give him credit because last week he was god-awful when it came to throwing the football. But what did he do? He made up for it with the rushing attack, right? And when you have the run game of Leonard Fournette to begin with, that's a great running back to have. And when Bortles can run like he did last week, awesome, perfect. But he cannot be as awful as he was last week with passing the football in this week's matchup. It's not going to fly with the Pittsburgh Steelers, who to me is a better defense than the Buffalo Bills. Don't get me wrong, that Jaguars defense is going to keep them in the game, so it's going to be a very, very close game. But Bortles needs to be better, at least half better than he was last week with throwing the football. Otherwise, the Jaguars will have no chance. So, I know when you talked about this game, and I, I agree, this was one of the games I'm really looking forward to um, because of how good defensively and how good physically this matchup should be. Uh, but the most important player in my mind in this game, it is not Le'Veon Bell. It's not Antonio Brown. It's not Big Ben. It's going to be Blake Bortles. Yeesh. <laughs> yes. He is, he is the key player in this, like we, you just said. The Jads went 10 and 6 this season. Sits their losses, all sits. Bortles had at least one interception. Jaguars are 8 and 0 when Bortles doesn't throw a pit. 9 and 0 if you count the playoff game against the Bills. The two games where he threw an interception, one against the Steelers. But they blew out the Steelers and bid Ben through five interceptions that game, so I don't really look at that much. The other against the Chargers, where he threw two in the final two minutes, they still wound up, they were down three in that game, and they still wound up tying that game and winning in overtime. So in that type of moment, he's almost supposed to lose that Chargers game when you throw two interceptions in the last two minutes of football game when you're losing. But they wound up winning that one. So nearly every game Bortles throws an interception, they've lost. And the games that he hasn't, they've won. As we talked about he didn't have great game passing, right? But he ran for 88 yards. He's actually fourth all time in QB rushing yard average. That, that to me is phenomenal to say that sentence. And that means when he's, he's not the most prolific runner. But when he goes and he breaks out, he gets a large gain. He, he had a 20-plus yard run. He had two 12-yard runs against the Bills. That's huge yardage. We talked about the Steelers' defense. Yes, it is a good defense, but with no Ryan Shazier, who was, I think he was seeing this week in uh, a wheelchair around Pittsburgh and uh, in the stadium. I mean, you talked about how much he's going to have to go through to recover from his injury, but the defense is not what it was uh, before his injury. Bortles has four games this season with over 300 passing yards. He hasn't turned the ball over too much this year. I know I said, okay, I've named six losses, but overall, the 13 interceptions on the season is not that much when you talk about Blake Bortles. 
I like this defense. It's the number one defense in the, the NFL. We saw what they were able to do against Pittsburgh earlier in the year. I'm not saying they're going to intercept Big, Big Ben five times, but what they were able to do, 15 rushes for Le'Veon Bell, 47 yards. Antonio Brown had 10 catches. Le'Veon Bell had 10 catches. They had to throw the ball constantly all game because they were down so much. But that Jaguars defense can contain Le'Veon Bell. That Jaguars defense of Jalen Ramsey at cornerback, who looks like one of the best top five cornerbacks in the league, he's going to go against a non-100% Antonio Brown throughout the game. You can quiet Antonio Brown that way. You can quiet Le'Veon Bell running the ball. And that will be able to get to Big Ben. You are going to be able to force Big Ben to make mistakes. And I do believe, I'm not expecting Bortles to have a 300-yard passing game, but I expect him to pass for more than what he was able to throw of 87 yards. But it's just, this team is good enough to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. They have the numbers that support the fact that they can beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. They have beat the Pittsburgh Steelers this season. And I think if Blake Bortles is just able to hold on to the football, throw just decent passage, get a couple first downs here or there, at the end of the day, even if the Steelers are able to make some big drives, I don't expect touchdowns. I expect field goals. I think the game is going to be relatively extremely close. And when it's a close game, I'm going to take Blake Bortles and the Jacksonville Jaguars defense over the Pittsburgh Steelers. As you said, 99 out of 100 fans are going to choose the Steelers. I'll be that one that takes the Jacksonville Jaguars to win and get to the AFC Championship. So Again, I, I think there's only like three people in this world that ever liked Blake Bortles. I've said it for weeks. Blake Bortles, Blake Bortles' mom, and me. So I'm, I'm trusting Bortles again. You do that, man. <laughs> <laughs> but so far, we have one difference in the AFC. You've got the Steelers versus the New England Patriots going to the AFC Championship. I got New England versus the Jacksonville Jaguars. Let's see if we'll have any differences in the NFC. Let's start with the Eagles and the Falcons. Falcons who played in the Super Bowl last year, beating the Rams while the Eagles without Carlson Wentz. Falcons on the road. Jose, who do you have in this one? I'm actually rolling with the Atlanta Falcons yet again. I think the Falcons looked really impressive against one of the best offenses last week in the LA Rams. Um, you know, and, and the Falcons are one of those teams where they may be the sixth seed, but they're, they're not your classic sixth seed. Obviously, the Falcons underachieved this year when it came to not being able to win the South. Obviously, the Falcons are easily a team that could be 12 and four, 11 and five on the season, and just got into the playoffs this year. They beat the number one offense, you know, one of the best offensive teams in the NFC in the Rams, and you're facing an Eagles team that doesn't have Carson Wentz, um, their team leader, their heart and soul, their captain of that team. You got to give me the Falcons in this one. Um, nothing against Nick Foles. I think Nick Foles is still a good starting QB. He's a starting QB for a lot of other NFL teams if he's not on the Eagles. But it goes back to what you said, like you said about Tua. Uh, Tua, I don't even know how to say his name. In Alabama, how many backups are really ready to take over when you got a guy in front of you like Carson Wentz? Do Nick Foles really think he was going to be seeing any time this year? Probably not. That injury happens now. All of a sudden, Nick Foles is forced into a starting role where he has to go win a playoff game. Not the easiest thing to do. If the last couple of weeks have been any indication, I don't think Nick Foles is ready to take on this role yet. Just, you know, I'm not saying anything against Nick Foles, but it's going to be a very uphill battle um, for the Philadelphia Eagles. You're going to be asking a J.E. and Blount to be running a lot of yards. Defense is pretty good, but the Falcons, again, are coming off a win. Um, the Falcons are one of those teams that 
they just snuck into the playoffs, but they can be very dangerous as a sixth seed um, because basically, I mean, this is a good team that's just underachieved all year long. So I just give me the Falcons over the Eagles, especially with no Carson Wentz. Can I just say after the years announcing and talking sports with you uh, that I think I finally caught you in a name that you didn't uh, were able to pronounce in first time after years of it being me. So this is uh, a happy moment almost to say the least. Well, uh, it also wasn't my job to learn the guy's name. Yeah, so. <laughs> very much so. Tua Tano Viola. Um, so I'm, I'm very... Uh, very happy at the moment, <laughs> but uh, I know I also have the Falcons. Uh, like you said, heart and soul was Carson Wentz to this team, and honestly, if he doesn't get injured, I, I think we're looking. We, we were talking about Wentz as the MVP. This yeah, season. I mean, he was he was my MVP from you know I mean for a while. I, I mean, he was a, a lock for me to win the award. About like six or seven weeks in, and he's he's basically other than Deshaun Watson at that moment, he's a front runner to win the MVP, especially on how the Eagles were doing. Then Watson goes down, and it's it's Wentz all the way at that point. And as soon as he gets injured, it almost seems like the entire hope of the Eagles' playoffs is pretty much eliminated. And, and on, a, on a sheer number of one stat I'm looking for when it comes to Nick Fultz, they're ranked 31st in the NFL in first downs since Nick Fultz took the starting QB once Carson Wentz got injured. That, to me, is it. You're, you're not recovering from that. And clearly, you're not going to be able to when you're 31st at that point. And we talked about how important a quarterback is and how irreplaceable a quarterback is, and no one can just sub in for a quarterback. Same offense. Nobody else is injured. Nick Foles has great numbers when it comes to an offensive head coach. The Eagles are still winning football games. But the numbers aren't there. 31st in the NFL in first downs. The Falcons, look, they looked good offensively against the Rams. And defensively, they were able to hold Todd Gurley in check, which is a rare thing to do this season. The Falcons, they went to the Super Bowl last year. They're a true playoff team. They know how to get there before. I'm expecting an even bigger game from Julio Jones than last week. And on top of all that, how much are the Falcons catching a break this week? Is the fact that they're going to Philly, and it's finally going to be warm weather. I, I know we're in New York, and it's been freezing for, what, the last two-plus weeks? Oh, uh, it's spring outside right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, you would, can't even tell it almost. It's supposed to be relatively, I think, near like 40s or 50s when it gets to Saturday uh, and when they play in Philly. I, I mean, for... If they were playing last week, oh, that would have been a huge difference. But they're not going to deal with extreme cold weather. That's just going to favor Atlanta even more. It just gives me all the reasons in the world to take the Atlanta Falcons, and I have them getting to the NFC Championship again. Lastly, the Minnesota Vikings take on the New Orleans Saints in what I believe is really the two best NFC teams playing each other at the moment. Jose... Who do you like? Well, in this one, I'm going to take the New Orleans Saints. Uh, I mean, last week, I mean, it was a close game. Don't get me wrong. The Panthers almost came back in that game. But how good did the Saints look? How good did Drew Brees look? How good is, is Kamara in the running back spot? Mark Ingram's having a season of his career, honestly. He's going to go get he's going to go get overpaid by a team this offseason. 
But Ingram's having a hell of a year as well, too, along with Kamara in the backfield. Drew Brees looks to be clicking on his game. Um, and don't get me wrong, the Vikings are a very good team. Defensively, I think the Vikings can try and hold the Saints in check, but I think the Saints are clicking right now offensively. Um, but when it comes to the Vikings, it's almost the same thing as I said about the L.A. Rams, and we didn't get to do a prediction show uh, for the wild card weekend. But I had the Falcons beating the Rams in that wild card weekend as well, too. Why? Because when I look at the Rams, they're, they're a team that's been overachieving all year long. Jared Goff is having a great year. Todd Gurley is having a great year. First year, new head coach Sean McVay really turning this team around from a laughing stock to the number one team in L.A. right now. And honestly, I was just they're basically a Cinderella story. And I was waiting for the clock to strike midnight. Right. We all year long, we've been waiting for the Rams to just fall apart and come back down to earth. And they finally did that in the playoffs. Well, I'm going to apply that same metaphor right here to the Vikings in Case Keenum. I mean, how lucky can you get if you're Minnesota to not only not have Teddy Bridgewater, you lose Sam Bradford, who I know I'm very hard on Bradford and I like to make fun of him a lot, but he still is a good QB that was leading the Vikings for a good chunk of the season last year and early this year before he got hurt. But Case Keenum, a renowned backup, comes in, takes over, and puts up the numbers that he does. And yes, they're great defensively, but offensively the Vikings can can put some points up on the board too. But I don't think, you know, I th- again, I think the magic is running out when it, ca- when it comes to Case Keenum. I can't say I'm confident that Keenum is going to keep it going when it matters the most in these playoff games. I can't see them beating the Saints. I think the Saints' defense is going to come alive yet again like they did late in the second half of the season. And I think the, the clock finally strikes midnight on the Cinderella story that is Case Keenum and him starting and him going on his run here. I'll, I'll say this to start. If I'm confident in Blake Bortles, you can be damn sure I'm confident in Case Keenum uh, this week. The two teams played week one. Vikings won 29-19, to but that could have been the same thing as like saying they played last year for how long ago they played. Uh there's nothing to take away from the Saints. They have had an amazing year out of their rookies. And then you talked about the fact that Mark Ingram has been incredible. Alvin Kamara has been amazing. Drew Brees really hasn't been like the Drew Brees passer we've known, but he's gotten it done. And the amazing thing is we've seen games where it's like Drew Brees didn't throw a touchdown pass at all, and the Saints won. And last week we saw there really was no relevancy of Kamar and Mark Ingram, and the Saints won. And the Saints' defense is very good as well. But the Saints did struggle with the run game. And to me, the Vikings are a better team than the Panthers. And the Vikings can match that trouble in having the Saints struggle in the run as well. But also what I'm looking at is cornerback at Xavier Rhodes. He's been shutting down wide receivers all season long. And I think that's something that the Saints are not going to expect. Uh, when Saints took an early lead and they threw that 80-yard touchdown past the Ted Dan, I don't really put too much weight into those type of plays, of course. But Michael Thomas is their number one wide receiver. And I expect him to get shut down. And I, I'm a big fan of Michael Thomas this season and how he's been in his first two years in the NFL. But you take just looking at how Xavier Rhodes has done, and I'll give you two examples. A.J. Green, two catches for 30 yards, and Julio Jones, two catches for 24 yards. Those are the numbers they've posted up when they've taken on Xavier Rhodes. I, I expect the same type of game 
from Michael Thomas, and that's not what the Saints can have because he is their leading receiver. He had 131 yards in the last game. And, and usually, Drew Brees is checking it down to his running backs like Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara, and each guy combined for two catches, 23 yards. They didn't have a game rushing. They didn't have a game receiving. And I believe the Vikings are just as good defensively that they can shut down the running backs. Maybe not to as much of a T, because it's really challenging to do so when you talk about, what, two of the top ten runner back, uh, runners this year. But to a good enough point where they're not going to do enough damage for the Vikings to feel like they're out of a football game, Case Cam and this Viking offense has been great this year. And we've seen Adam Thielen struggle a little bit. But Stefan Dids is back. Thielen's still great. They have two running bats that they use often as much as they want in Murray and McKinnon. I, I trust in uh, Keenum 100%. I expect the Vikings to get the win. They're at home in this game. And I have them actually hosting the NFC Championship game. And you would have the Saints in that sense when you have the Falcons beating the Eagles. And, you know, this is a Vikings team that I think has been the best team in the NFL the moment Carson Wentz got injured. The Vikings were the best team in the NFC. They could have even been the best team in the NFC when Carson Wentz was still on the Eagles. But the moment he went down, in my mind, they were 100% the best team in the NFC. And I haven't seen a reason to not believe in the Minnesota Vikings. And I have them beating New Orleans Saints and it's going to be a big part on this defense and Xavier Rhodes shutting down Michael Thomas is the first step and then shutting down the running bats is step number two and I think they can do all that. With that, again, Jose has the Patriots versus the Steelers in the AFC Championship. I have the Jaguars taking on... I can't believe I'm saying the word Jaguars. Uh, the Jaguars taking on the New England Patriots and then... It's the Falcons versus the Saints in Jose's. And for myself, it's the Vikings versus the Falcons. Uh, you know, it always seems like we can't really have a sports conversation unless we're mentioning the Ball family. And I think that's just everybody in general at this point. And I don't know why, but it, it has gotten to that point. I and think we might need our own segment for them eventually. Eventually, it's just... <laughs> it, they need their own podcast, just what the Ball family, they have their own TV show and all that, but um, Jose, earlier this week, Lamar Ball said uh, about Luke Walton, Luke doesn't have control of the team no more, they don't want to play for him. Then Lonzo responds with this by saying, I'll play for anybody, taking a real passive attitude on it, uh, when asked about what his dad just said about Luke Walton as the coach. Baldo, Lonzo Ball goes on to say he's a grown man uh, when it comes to his father's comments, and he's going to say what he wants to say. I can't do anything about it. And obviously, Lonzo's right on that factor, but with almost saying he's a grown man, it almost made me feel like saying, so are you, Lonzo. And you almost have to put your foot down and act like an adult and show maturity. Uh, do you think Lonzo – it doesn't seem like Lonzo wants to step and take sides between the Lakers and Luke Walton or his dad. But do you think it almost more has to be like saying Lonzo has to step up and say, hey, enough. 
worry about my two brothers who aren't adults yet, but I am. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about all this is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I actually had more of a problem with what Lonzo said than I did with what LeVar said. Can, can we make sure we, I said that right? Yeah. I had more of a problem with what Lonzo said than I did with LeVar. And he now, speaks, listen, what, Le- three words? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And you know what? But honestly, LeVar Ball is going to say what he's going to say. Why? Because no one controls him. Lonzo's right. He is a grown man. He's going to say what he's going to say. He always has a microphone in front of his face. He's always going to have a camera in front of his face. LeVar Ball is going to say whatever he wants. He is his own media outlet, right? If you're in the Lakers, you have to tune that out. And I know it's hard because he's the father of one of your star players, one of the faces of your franchise, right? Now, if I'm Lonzo Ball, though, by saying I'll play for anybody, well, that doesn't really help. You should have at least said, hey, you know, no one's, you know, everybody's still playing hard. Kyle, Kyle Kuzma came out and said, Luke Walton's our guy. I play, for, I play for Luke Walton. We trust in him, right? That's basically what Lonzo should have said. And for Lonzo to say that, you know, like you said, he doesn't want to choose sides. No one's asking Lonzo Ball to choose sides here. What I'm worried about is not so much of what LeVar Ball's comments is doing to Luke Walton and the team, right? These guys are grown individuals. They can decide for themselves. And who knows if it's true or not, right? We don't know if there's any truth behind Luke Walton losing this Lakers team, right? It's been tough times. What does bother me, though, is... And what worries me is about the chemistry of the locker room now, right? Because, you know, I was watching Undisputed the other day with Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp, and Shannon Sharp brought up a really good point, saying, you know, what if this becomes a case where players can't trust Lonzo Ball anymore, right? What if players turn to Lonzo and say, man, your dad has a big mouth? Because let's say this was true. Let's say the players don't like Luke Walton, and let's say they had a conversation about it, and Lonzo Ball goes tells his father, and now LeVar is blurting it out for the whole world to see. That's a problem, right? Shannon Sharp said that the Lakers just got rid of somebody who couldn't keep his mouth shut. He's playing in Brooklyn now, right? That's what happened with D'Angelo Russell because the players, you know, he, he leaked out some personal information and it didn't click well anymore. And the team doesn't like D'Angelo Russell anymore. Next thing you know, Russell's being traded, right? Team chemistry is so important, especially in a game like basketball when it's five on five, five guys on one court at a time. One of the smallest rosters, right? NFL has a 53-man roster. Baseball is a 25-man roster. How many people are on a basketball roster? 12, 15 at max? That's a close niche group of guys. You've got to be able to trust your teammates. So I do worry that LeVar's comments is going to hurt the trust factor in terms of Lonzo Ball. And it also becomes a headache. You know, wherever Lonzo Ball goes now, you're always going to have to deal with this headache that is LeVar Ball. But again, my problem became more with Lonzo Ball. Lonzo is a face of the Lakers. Whether people like it or not, he is a face of this franchise. Himself, Brendan Ingram, and even Kyle Kuzma is slowly becoming big time. You know, they're making the Lakers relevant again, right? There's no denying that the Lakers are relevant again. We're talking about them. They might be able to bring in some big time free agents like Paul George, maybe LeBron James, because of the young core that they have. What I'm saying for Lonzo Ball is now is the time to put your foot down and become your own person. We get it. Your dad's not going to shut up. (laughs) He's not going to shut up anytime soon. And believe it or not, that's okay because what LeVar says doesn't have to have any truth behind it. It doesn't need to be a solid, concrete evidence. To be honest with you, the Lakers are going to say, we don't really care what LeVar Ball says, right? You can do everything you want. You can t- take away his media credential. You can do all these things. He's still going to have a media outlet. His word is still going to be heard. But if you're Alonzo Ball, put your damn foot down and say, hey, what my dad says doesn't exactly reflect how I feel. So don't be taking his words as my face value of what I want to say. Part of the reason we're making a big deal is because 
it, not because it's LeVar Ball. And as much as I don't want to say it's because a parent gets involved uh, on uh, someone of coaching, but it's news because we look at it and say, well, is it what Lonzo feels? Does Has Lonzo said something to LeVar that makes LeVar immediately go out and say, Luke Walton doesn't have control of the team no more, and they don't want to play for him. And then when Lonzo Ball responds with, I'll play for anybody, well, now it makes us all look at it and say, oh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is that Lonzo does have an issue with Luke Walton. And maybe all of a sudden we do think that Luke Walton's lost control of the team. You're not going to get great chemistry this season. That, that that to me is not going to happen because you look at it and say, uh, Brooke Lopez is on a one-year deal. They have issues with Julius Randle that they want to trade. They have uh, Luol Dang that they're going to be trying to get rid of whenever they want to stop paying him uh, and try and just work out his contract in a different way. I think Corey Brewer is a free agent at the end of the season. So there's not going to be true chemistry right now. And, they, and really, it's like Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball were like the only two guaranteed players that it seems like right now for the Los Angeles Lakers. But you can't, and I have more of an issue again with Lonzo. And it comes for, that's what I expect from LeVar Ball. That's what I know is going to be expected. I almost would say that if he wasn't in the NBA right now, he'd pull him and bring him to Lithuania or somewhere else. But Lonzo Ball, you're an adult. And in my mind, yeah, we we don't want to overstep our boundaries when it comes to um, our parents. And we always want to take the side of our family. But there comes a point where you have to be your own man and be like, hey, worry about my brothers. You pulled one out of high school. You pulled one out of college. You brought him to a different country to play basketball because you look at that and say that's best for them and they're not adults yet. But I'm an adult. I'm making millions. I was the second pick in the draft. I can handle myself right now and I don't need these type of comments going around because it's not helping the team at the end of the day. We we thought maybe it would because that's how it's going to bond this team where it was what earlier in the year when they played the uh, Washington Wizards and Marcin Dortat had said something on Twitter and John Wall and all of a sudden the Lakers band together and they beat the Wizards. Yeah, then it looks like it's great. But that's not how you're going to build it. And Lonzo Ball really needs to become his own man and has to become an adult and has to pretty much say more than three words when it comes to these situations. Because if you're going to let your dad go and be involved like this, then that's fine. And this is what we're going to have to deal with for your entire career. And this is why teams might not have wanted to draft you. And this is why you're going to be viewed as a head case. And you're not going to see some of the best players on your team that don't want to deal with these type of issues. Or you can become your own adult at this point. So it's it's sad that I have more of an issue, like you said, I have more of an issue with Lonzo Ball here because I still see him doing nothing when it comes to these things. 
and he easily could make his headaches go away. And if he doesn't view them as headaches, then how are they not headaches for the rest of the team? How are they not headaches for your coach, Luke Walton? How are they not for Magic Johnson? And that's the point of it all. So maybe they're not a headache for one guy on your team, but they're a damn sure headache on others. And you have a chance to do the right thing for your team, for yourself, and for the people you work with. And he's not doing it. It's a parent that worked at pretty much. Lastly, before we go into Beardback and then Dude and Dunce of the Week, the Mets signed Jay Bruce to a three-year, $39 million deal. Jose, as a Met fan, what's your take on the signing? Well, you know, this might shock a lot of people because it's no secret that I didn't like Jay Bruce in the past. But I'm actually really happy about this deal um, to bring back Jay Bruce. I mean, you look at a couple of the other options that are out there. You heard reports that the Mets were looking at Todd Frazier, possibly Mike Moustakis, if their price tag fell a little bit. I don't feel like any of those guys fits the Mets, honestly. I really don't. Um, I think Moustakis is a little bit overrated, and I don't think Todd Frazier really fits what the Mets need right now. If I'm the Mets, I would have preferred, as a Met fan, I would have preferred Lorenzo Cain um, so he could play some center field. Um, but reuniting with Jay Bruce is not the worst thing in the world. $39 million over three years, that's a little bit under 10 mil per year, um, which is a big discount com- considering you saw the numbers that Bruce put up when he went to Cleveland. Bruce can be a powerhouse for this team. He played a lot better in the first half of the season for the Mets in 2017 than he did when they first traded for him in 2016. Um, and you hear about him all the time, being a great clubhouse guy, being a great mentor. And I think, you know, it took a while for Jay Bruce to get settled, especially into that big city feel, since he's always been kind of a small town kind of guy. Um, but I'm actually kind of happy that he's back. Why? Because one, you know it works. You've seen this lineup and how powerful it was when he was in it. Um, my only concern, though, is that it kind of raises more questions than answers by signing Jay Bruce. And this is not Jay Bruce's fault, right? Met fans, glad he's back. He brings some power back into the lineup. But now we kind of revert back to what was the problem last year, an overcrowded outfield. And I understand Conforto may not be ready by opening day, so it might not even matter. But an overcrowded outfield, we still don't have a legit second baseman, and we still don't have uh, a guaranteed rotation starter that's going to give me 30 starts a year. So great to see Jay Bruce back, but there's still a lot of question marks to be answered about the Mets going forward. Yeah, there's... There's certainly a lot of issues. I still want to see Eduardo Nunez signed. I think he could be the best fit for the Mets to get the leadoff sure, hitter. Or, or uh, even a guy like Josh Harrison, you know, honestly. Yeah. I, Harrison's a great example, too, because Harrison plays second base. He can play third base. He can play short. Not really a shortstop, though. I, so they need a versatile player. Uh, that was one of the big things that made Jose Reyes useful when he actually could hit. And he was younger, and his legs weren't held together by tape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But the idea that you get a versatile player, because the Mets do always have a ton of injuries. I think that just goes when you sign a contract with the Mets. Uh, But you're going to need someone that can play second or play third, especially with David Wright, or play shortstop uh, at times. So I think there's a need to have that type of open availability of a position player. And... Josh Harrison or Eduardo Nunez fit the bill either way. Both guys hit for average very well. Nunez is going to steal more bases than Josh Harrison, but they're still both good leadoff hitters getting the job done. And that's, to me, a guy, either one of those guys that the Mets have to go for uh, at the end of the day. I, I prefer Eduardo Nunez. I like the Jay Bruce signing. Uh, 
I would have loved to see Juan Ladares get more of a shot. I still think they could open up the door with Brandon Nimmo. Uh, he looked decent, but again, like you said, it's going to be an overcrowded outfield. It's going to be a lot of position players, and I think the Mets are looking at it again the same as last year. Uh, if we can keep you know, Cespedes healthy and a couple other guys healthy, and then a few other guys fall off, we have guys to replace them. And they're going to go with a real crowded roster, then more of set positions, and hope you can get a better season than last year, though. At the end of the day, it's, it's tough to see the Mets being worse than last year. I mean, honestly, again, the Mets kind of fall into the same boat as the New York Giants in a way, where, I mean, this is not a bad team. It's just a lot of injuries at the wrong time to a lot of different people. You're not going to be successful when you're missing 20 out of the 25 guys that are on your opening day roster. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and of course, it's going to be the pitching. Jade Pudon, yeah. Noah Syndergaard, they're going to be the two big key pieces right off the bat. Uh, the bullpen should be better than last year, of course. but Which is really why I want to see the Mets sign a third starter, like a legit third starter, like a Lance Lynn, Alex Cobb, somebody who I know is going to be there for 30 starts a year. That way, when you ask me, I could feel a lot better about Syndergaard, DeGrom, and a number three starter, and then have the four or five spots be a lot of these guys that still need to prove themselves, honestly. It's it's an unwillingness to sign, though. Uh, but uh, Jay Bruce for $13 million for three years, uh, 13 on average for three years, $39 million total. It's not a bad contract. Kind of made me, I will say, when I first saw it, uh, this is going to be a Daniel Murphy sentence, but three years, 39 <laughs> I believe that's the exact number Daniel Murphy signed with the Washington Nationals. So I, I actually think Murphy took less than that. I think it was three years, 32. Th- 32? We can find out for next time, but I think it, I think it was less than 39, honestly. I, I thought it was 39. Uh, so certainly something, uh, even if you want to tweet at us on the answer to that question. Uh, as we do that, we'll get into beer back for a moment. And I got four good ones for today. So in 1973, owners of the American League baseball teams voted to adopt the designated hitter rule on a trial by uh, basis. Boo! Boo! <laughs> that's how you Sorry, know. Sorry, my bias was showing on that one. I was about to say that's how you know this is a National League uh, fan base <laughs> podcast. Uh, but certainly, the National League could be joining them relatively soon. No, uh, but that, honestly, I'm, I'm, you know. Um, I, as much as I don't like the designated hitter position, I think it's what makes the American League unique. And that's why I do like having one per league because it makes it unique. It's a different style of play and it forces teams um, you know, to strategize a little bit more because a lot of people think it's easy for the National League teams to go into the American League just throwing an extra hitter. It's not that easy, honestly. For National League teams, they have to worry about you know, who to get the day off to, who to put in that DH spot, who can they add as an extra defender and stuff like that. You know, A DH is really... I know a lot of teams like to rotate it now, but guys like David Ortiz, that's a skillful position to just be a DH. It's not as easy as it looks, honestly. No, the the challenge of it all is we've seen so many times where it's like, oh, a player is just going to have to bat today. Yeah. And they struggle. Because it's yeah, I mean, not, it's, it's a unique position. So. Yeah, it's, it's not a position where you're like, oh, I play the field like I've been doing for the last 15 years every single day. So to have success in it, like David Ortiz had, or, or uh, so it, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on uh, Eduardo, but um, it's one of those weird positions, and it's certainly uh, extremely challenging. Uh, but I always sum it up as if you like a lot of offense, the American League is more for you of a fan base. 
if you like a lot of strategy and a lot of managerial decisions, I feel the National League is more of a standout of a lead because you see those double switches. You see those pitching changes. You see, okay, it's the fifth or sixth inning on this amount of pitch down. Do I have to take my starting pitcher out because he's coming up to bat? So I, I always enjoy the National League a, a bit more just because of the strategy and the manager decisions that are involved in the game a lot more often than just switching a pitcher or and doing a pitching change because the other 10 hitters, they don't change. In 1995, the NHL owners and players ended a 103-day lockout. It was announced that the regular season would be reduced to 48 games and would start January 20th. Uh, of course, MLB had their own lockout in the 90s as well. In 2010, Mark McGuire admitted that he used steroids on and off. Uh, I think everybody knew that at that point. but he On and uh, off my <laughs> behind. <laughs> that was more clearly on. <laughs> uh, the timeline included the 1998 season. And when he broke the single-season home run record, which didn't last too long, just ask Barry Bonds. Uh, and then in 2014, Alex Rodriguez's suspension was reduced from 211 games to 162 games, just a full season where he was fully suspended. And now, of course, retired and pretty good in my mind as a Fox analyst at the end of the day. Yeah. Big to differ, but whatever. <laughs> I think you had him as a dunce of the week once earlier. I did, I in, did. In one of our previous shows. So, yeah, uh, no surprise, a little bit of an issue. Uh, for my dude of the week, Tua Tano Viola, for going 14 of 24, passing 166 passing yards total, three touchdowns, one interception, 27 rushing yards, and oh, yeah, he just replaced Jalen Hurts halfway through the college football championship as Alabama was trailing 13 to, and to nothing at that point to come back, tie the game up 20-20, possibly to win the game with that field goal. And then, of course, Alabama would win in overtime 26-23 as Tun Oviola is our dude of the week. Although Nick Williams almost had a good chance. Uh, not Nick Williams, Lou Williams. Of the Clippers had a 50-point outing last night. He, had, he was fighting for it, but automatically had to just give it to Tua. But, Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Well, Nick, this week is actually really tough for me. I had a lot of candidates even going back to the week prior. I mean, the Baltimore Ravens were a prime candidate. You could have argued that LeVar Ball was a prime candidate in this one. Even Mr. Papanostos for missing two field goals for Alabama <laughs> in that game. But nonetheless, now that the NFL season is over, I think it's only rightfully so. And this might not happen often, so enjoy it now while you can. My dunce of the week is me. It's me, Jose Rivera. Why? Because on a couple podcasts ago, before the NFL season started, we gave our bold predictions, Nick. And I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but do you remember <laughs> yes, what I one do. of my bold predictions was? I, I do remember one of your bold <laughs> predictions that really stood out to me. <laughs> Which was that the Cleveland Browns were going to go 8-8. Eight and eight. Well... <laughs> I was tad off as the Cleveland Browns decided to go 0-16 this year. Um, so, yes, my dunce of the week happens to be me, Jose Rivera. I'll gladly take the dunce cap for today for even thinking that the Browns would win eight games this year. Too much trust in the Browns. I had the uh... Yeah, I mean, I don't know what was, was wrong with me that day. Um, you know, I'm not ruling out illegal substances in the, in the equation, not going <laughs> to lie. 
Uh, my my best bold prediction was the Green Bay Packers. I had them at eight and eight or worse, and so that was my uh, best one. And of course, I needed Aaron Rodgers to get hurt for pretty much the entire season to get there. But yeah, that that should be a good uh, a lot of Dunstall week candidates. But uh, at the end of the day, the Cleveland Browns going to zero and sixteen. Which, by the way, the parade part. What was your take on that? <laughs> Uh, that was interesting. I felt a little bit bad. I mean, to me, I think that's just rubbing it in the player's face at that point. I understand the frustration as a fan if you go 0-16, but I think it's a little bit of a jerk move to the players, you know, who are there suffering through that 0-16 season. I mean, the players don't want to go 0-16. I'm pretty sure the players did not lose every single game on purpose, um, even though um, the organizational standpoint is lose as many games. No player wants to lose 16 games straight. Uh, they did it any way possible at times, but they certainly you, – you played a win. At the end of the day, uh, Browns and, will- and if you watch a lot of their games, they did compete. You you can't say that they didn't compete in a lot of the games. So, yeah, and they'll have a draft day is going to be a big day for Cleveland. Uh, some fun final thoughts, though, Jose. Do you believe in patterns dating back to 2008? Every year, Nick Saban and Alabama has won the championship. LeBron James has won the NBA Finals championship the same year. Saban lost in the playoffs in or in playoff games or the championship game. LeBron James would lose in the NBA Finals those years. So Saban wins the championship this season. Does uh, Could a consistent streak continue for LeBron James at that point? So some fun final thoughts on that one. Yeah, honestly, I'm not too sure about that with the way Cleveland looks right now. I think they have a lot of chemistry issues. I think a lot of it is because Isaiah Thomas missed a lot of time. So now that Isaiah Thomas is back, it's basically like the Cavaliers are starting all over again. Will the Cavaliers make the playoffs? Of course they will. Um, but I think you're going to have to ask me that question another time, depending on how the Cavaliers look later on in the year. I'm pretty sure we'll talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers soon on an upcoming podcast as well, too. And speaking about upcoming podcasts, we'll be obviously recording a podcast next week to talk about the AFC Championship game and the NFC Championship game as well as we're going to be talking a lot about the MLB, not about free agency, but about the Hall of Fame ballot, as on January 24th, they're going to be announcing the ballot. So Jose and I will be going over a lot of the players on the ballot, who we think are going to be making the Hall of Fame, the recent trend when it comes to guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. So that will be our episode 20 podcast as we're doing it pretty well, getting through those double digits. We're out of the teens now as well as, so that will be coming out next week. And of course, thank you for listening to Sarasso and the Beard podcast episode 19. Once again, I'm Nick Sarasso. And I'm talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And of course, enjoy the NFL divisional playoff round coming up this weekend as you're listening to Sarasso and the Beard podcast episode 19. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen, make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. So let's say you're into yoga or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen, make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. 
So try the Stretch and Flex smoothie and tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day.